0: Critical Reading, The Discovery of India Main argument Nehru contends that India's ability to absorb an amalgamation of cultures throughout history stems from a deep reservoir of wisdom that pervades the society. This reservoir formed from past religions and cultural doctrines has fostered a society that has allowed the facilitation of different modes of thoughts and the fusion of several cultural sects that manifested a unique national identity this acceptance of variety contributes to the nation's great resiliency over thousands of years and has allowed the country to retain the same principles that have served as a foundation of national exploration and expansion he saw british oppression as a fundamental force severing india from its links with the rest of the world and that these links need to be rediscovered by adapting to the new industrial advances of the age Ties have become more economic and state based, so India must adapt with the changes to form those relations again while asserting the ancient basis of these ties to foster brotherhood. Nehru saw compromising with evil is not sometimes necessary to further the ambitions of a nation, but that these compromises must not lose sight of higher goals. He felt vaguely that new feelings of internationalism could foster brotherhood, but this was not an immediate priority for him as India was still in shackles. In reference to to balancing progressivism and ancient wisdom, he says accumulated knowledge can also be a burden because it becomes difficult for someone to take a synthetic view of the whole. For still are the ways of wisdom, and our temper trembleth not. 2. Author's Audience Nehru expresses how he does not clearly know who he is writing for, especially as it is emphasized in the introduction that this work is not historical scholarship, but an act of political and literary imagination. Really, for anyone who wants to know India, such as politicians of other countries and Indians who want to know how the cultural identity of India formed through historical context, which describes migration, conflict, and philosophical ideas. Three, where is he coming from slash what does he want to accomplish? He's writing this in prison, and the views he expressed come from many years traveling and viewing the different parts of India and their communities. His views also stem from many years serving in India's National Congress front and center during the long fight for independence against foreign oppressors. Despite this, he relates that at revisiting India, he felt like he was looking at it as a friendly outsider, would considering he went to college in England and much of his lawyer etiquette has been influenced by that environment. Nehru is trying to understand India better for himself and hopes his philosophical musings and introspective inquiry in examining the long history of the continent and how it applies to the future will illuminate some understanding of the continent for someone else. He sees the task of understanding the ancient country of India difficult, as it is both mysterious and durable, yet pliable at the same time by acceptance and superstition. Additionally, he is trying to form some cohesive vision of India for future generations on which to foster a progressive society, drawing from the reservoirs of acceptance for expanding their knowledge base and inquiry into the world around them that is severed from ritual and superstitious tendencies." Four, does, does the author defend his stance adequately? Nehru's book isn't exactly a historical argument. It is a description of historical and political events coupled with his philosophical musings about how these events relate to each other in the overall scheme of Indian society. It is difficult to say whether he defends his stance as the purpose of his novel is more self-inquiry and description of the nature of Indian society and how it relates to the world. It certainly draws inspiration from much wisdom and seeks to relate wisdom of its own in order to inspire others of some hidden potential locked inside the land waiting to be woken from its slumber. It certainly expresses the fact that India is a diverse nation that has fostered a philosophy of peace that will contribute much to the global community when industrialized and channeled towards some goal. Frankly, he doesn't have a starch stance except the general scope of how Indian society should function. His religious beliefs he even describes as vague humanism, as he draws much inspiration from Tagore, the man of thought, and Gandhi, the man of action. He feels ashamed of the despondent poverty of people and widespread superstition, rightly so. 5. What kinds of proof does he or she use? The issue that Nehru explores includes how to balance socialism and free enterprise in a society. How to heal and learn from the wounds of of oppression to form the severed relationship that existed between India and other countries. Nehru expresses his wishes that there must be a living philosophy to answer the problems of today. This philosophy must be tempered by reason without ruling out intuition must be on the basis on individual and social harmony in a society when it comes to balancing the beliefs of the two. Answering the how may help us answer the why, focusing on means rather than ends. Most of his proof is personal experience and quotes of notable historical figures to justify his points that mix historical perspective with philosophical insight. Imaginary debate with source 1. What kinds of evidence hurt this author's argument? Where are logical holes? He doesn't present an argument exactly, but to throw some shade on some of his argument, one percent evidence showing British industrialization benefited India greatly more, more so than if the British had colonized the nation. This is hard to verify in hindsight, as, as economic and political oppression left an indelible mark on the inhabitants of the nation. Two, when is the author giving me a fact, and when is he trying to persuade me of his, his view is correct? In matters of philosophy, Nehru draws evidence using inferences and quotes to illuminate ideas for the readers. Most of the historical information he presents is self-evident, while there is not, conc- there's not any concrete argument he is defending in the book. Most of his, his assertions come from philosophical musings he writes about in reference to historical facts. Notes and thoughts on discovery of India Why does the cage bird sing? Why do people write books in prison? Nehru's present was taken, he had to look to the past to reclaim India's future. Slaves to routine and prison, similar in some ways to conditioning the soul. A society that concentrates more on the means than the ends, in a sense, observation, and an even stricter sense, meditation. The essence of one technique of meditation is strictly cultivating mindfulness, full observation of the moment. This is something Nehru practiced while he was in prison. Society needs to value the means of production more. We become better observers, we become better meditators. Also, the French philosopher George Bernanos also says, the mark of a corrupt society is that the ends justify the means. The two two statements I just said also relate to FDR. Nehru was, was attracted to Gandhi's sentiment of focusing solely on the means and the ends will work out themselves. This is a prevalent Vedic idea of right action and detachment from the result. Rights protect our freedoms. Duty protect our rights. Without both, society is doomed. There must be a revitalizing of duty in our society in which individuals make stern obligations to prevent oppression or tyranny. This is something that the members of the Indian independence movement were very well aware of and was on their mind frequently. Um, Nehru talks about finding the happy medium between nationalism and internationalism to foster world equilibrium. Myth of national dis- destiny for every country. India has a deep wellsprint of strength that has allowed it to survive um, conflict and oppression over over thousands of years. Nehru Nehru made mark of three societies having a vital energy for economic development and political aspirations, including Russia, America, and the Chinese. The Russian rejuvenation to break away from old structures was apparent from the Russian Revolution of nineteen seventeen. Chinese great great inner vitality was also evidenced by their economic development. There's also earlier signs of past civilization in India, which had great advancements as well, such as Dwarka. Aryan conquests, reformed materialistic rule into spiritual rule, corrupted to represent ethnic or physical physical characteristic. The great irony of delusion. Sanitation: the majority of people in the world do not possess present in the Indus River civilization, let alone in India or Pakistan. Water should not be charged for. Like electricity and water, it should be a human right. Rights were not emphasized, but duties were in dharma. Just because someone is blind and feels rain, but does not observe it, does not mean the rain does not exist. The transcendental can not be verified by the scientific method, yet something in your soul says it is nothing to fear. Finding unity in in harmony and disharmony. Summary. It has become quite evident upon reading Neri's discovery of India, the narrow-mindedness of our culture in regards to our understanding and interpretation of history. There are many instances demonstrating the exquisite advances of Indian society and their foreign expansions and dissemination of ideas, which is not given due credit, particularly by the preeminent mainstream European scholars of the time. Moreover, due credit is not given to many other groups as well. For all the demonization of the British, many people forget their massive industrialization of several countries, though this came at a heavy cost both financially and psychologically for the Indian people. They may have built railways, but they nonetheless divided the people through politics and history. Just because someone builds a bridge does not mean it supports the communities across both sides of the river equally. Nehru also illuminates the vast contributions of Arab society, especially after the advent of Muhammad's teachings. Much of their expansion during this time period is is demonized, yet in some regards they offered their subjects better options than the prevailing powers such as in North Africa, a region where the Christian societies were quite intolerant towards each other when compared to those in Europe at the time. Demonstrations of national superiority certainly develop one's pride for the nation, but they also make one prone to illusions of competence and of intellectual security. A prime example is the Brahmins of India who over time became stuck in their ways believing that society had continued to be the pinnacle of intellectual advancement when that no longer was the case. The, the historian and philosopher al-biruni points this out in his book, where, where when he demonstrates knowledge to an Indian scholar, he is replied with a comment, Oh, what, what, a, what Hindu scholar has taught you this knowledge? This historical isolation from the world is creating not only moral ineptitude, but also worldly ignorance as contributing to social intolerance. The difference is that today our barriers are no longer physical, only mental. In the past, some isolation was necessary to protect core beliefs and to stop impressionable minds from running away with theories that could break down social structures, providing stability to communities. Now it is certainly a different case. Ideas can be disseminated within seconds. Traditional dogmatic social structures are no longer as necessary to the preservation of societies as they once were, and they're even more of a burden today than they were in the past. It almost seems as if nations are trying to cling to their past historic glory as a feeling that society is changing subconsciously. The rise in nationalism in countries such as India and Pakistan evidence this. Reviving past glory under the false pretense that, that, that it will mean the permanent preservation of cultural identity and ideas when all it is truly doing is alienating societies from the rest of the advanced world. These ideas are stemmed under the false notion that there is some threat to religion and cultural ideas by outside entities when in reality the destruction of religious ideals in the time that we live in is truly an insurmountable task. With the advent of high-speed internet, I could not destroy your religious beliefs with the strongest military force in the world. It is time that the protection and defense of religious and cultural ideas no longer be left in the hands of fundamentalists and extremists, but should be given to the scholars and intellectuals whose jobs it is to express the temperament of a changing global society. Nehru Additionally, Nehru draws a strong de- distinction between the socialization of groups and family development in the Indian caste system to the personal, more indiv- individualistic de- development in the West in America. A union between such extremes of social stratification and personal ambition can lead to a more inclusive society where groups' endeavors are cherished as well as personal freedom. Sounding familiar, this is something that Dr. Martin Luther King also believed in as well. Specifically, how the, the individualism of capitalism could could combine with, this, with a, the community solidarity of socialism for the beloved community. Too much social stratification leads to lack of individual freedom, while too much focus on individual ambition leads to man-made social stratification as the wealthiest became the head of society by virtue of their career status and ambition. These individuals also don't develop a sense of group development that extends into a sense of community development. The individual mentality must be tempered by a more collective mentality so personal development doesn't develop at the cost of national unity. Early colonial rule was characterized by general moods of exhaustion, lack of curiosity, and submission to outside elements for most of the people. Although the British were revolutionizing industry, they deliberately prevented these changes from being exported into their colonies, such as India, for fear that they may not be able to consolidate or exploit the people as vigorously. Printing press example is given. Bengal played a dominant role in British life. Politicians and lawyers from Bengal were the first leaders of India. Tagore speaks of the values given to national self-interest over that of fundamental truths, when learning about history in Bengal as a child. This was disillusioning for him. 1857 revolutionaries were not united in this field, as Sarvekar notes in his 1857 War for Independence book, a book which was banned by the British government. The new social conscience in India began arising. Indian National Congress started in 1885. Basic problems of unemployment and poverty remained untouched for majority while, while a, a few gained some betterment and accumulation of wealth. Page 366-383, to 383, Hindu and Muslim Reform Movements. Diyanandad Swaraswati Arya Samaj, back to the Vedas, staunch defender of humanism. Parliament of Religion in Chicago, 1893. Uh, Vivek- Vivekananda stated America is the best field in the world to carry on an idea. It was the future religion of a th- thinking society. Cash should be kept separate from religion, but over time the two began to mix as foreign domination increasingly began to threaten their religious leaders. The only hope of India is from the masses. The upper classes are physically and morally dead. Abhay was was stated by Vivekananda to be fearless and to be strong in the face of adversity. Tagore was a man of thought, while Gandhi was a man of ceaseless action. Seeing the deterioration and massive attacks on their populace, Muslims began to look outside of India for their sense of religious identity, coupled with their dreams of a religious kingdom encompassing their ideals. This is what drove drove forth the caliphate movement to preserve the Ottoman Empire, yet unfortunately this movement failed. And this ultimately led many Muslims to leave the Congress. The Muslim League was against the 400th anniversary of Akbar because he was a symbol of Indian unity. Sir Syed, Muslim reformer, pushed cooperation with the British, equality in British education. Sir uh, Syed distanced himself from the National Congress, who he saw as too aggressive. Under inspiration of British government, the Muslim League was formed. Abu Kalam Azad, at 24 years, a young, educated, and eloquent journalist, inspired Islamic youth against nationalism while angering older, older Muslim uh, fundamentalists. Abul Kalam Azad forced older generations to recognize the need to come closer to Congress and to come closer to unity of self-governed India, a rule of a secular nation. Impressions after finishing Discovery of India Today happens to be Pakistan's Independence Day and tomorrow is India's Independence Day. This was written in August 14, 2015. From the novel, it is clear, Nehru had a thorough understanding of the revolutionary sentiment of his people, the conflicting mixture of emotions that consumed the populace as they both yearned for freedom, but were waiting for, with an internal passion stalled by the inability to do anything. Nehru had time to sit and contemplate these emotions while behind bars and communicate them in his writing, while keeping the past and future in perspective. He frequently references his deep-seated hope for internationalism, a sentiment he feels is shared by many, but with no clear direction in the current darkness in the world. He clearly understands the need for progressivism in the country and believes the internal wisdom of the country would retain the traditional routes and and tradition. In hindsight, it seems this wisdom has faded almost entirely from all forms of political action and government formation. Progressivism is clearly present, yet the inner wisdom has been altered to increasing nationalism in the country, stemming from feelings of threat from the growing minority religions. Will progressivism and traditional wisdom find a middle ground? People seem to be cling- clinging to some hope of revitalizing the past with no understanding of the principles that form these kingdoms, leading to shadows of kingdoms being formed off to the picture of a predecessor. Simply imitating without innovating leads to stagnation and results from a lack of foresight. So so basically, I I gave you my thoughts and my summaries on, on the discovery of India by Jawaharlal Nehru, because this was one of the seminal books of Indian history. As I stated before, it isn't exactly a historical argument. It is more so a, a case of political and literary imagination. And in many ways, it's very revealing of future histories that were to be written in India. And to, these future histories, um, written close to the time of independence, were called uh, Marxist and Nehru driven histories. Um, and in some sense, these histories are being challenged, and they're also challenged and also accommodated with new historical thoughts on the right side. But in, in many senses I feel I feel threat I feel um, worried that in many cases these histories are trying to be um, not only skepticized but challenged and dismantled by the right in India. And it's interesting why these histories these histories are socialist, as I said Marxist narrow driven histories because it relates to the constitution of India, which I'll just state briefly what it says. We the people of India having solemnly resolved to constitute India into a Sovereign, here it goes, socialist, secular, democratic republic, and to secure to all its citizens justice, social, economic, and political, liberty of thought, expression, belief, faith, and worship, equality of status and of opportunity, and to promote among them all fraternity, asserting the dignity of the individual and the unity and integration of the nation. So many of these ideas were, were the reason why these four ideals, justice, equality, and liberty, and fraternity, and socialism, were put in the constitution were not only due to Nehru, but were also due to Babasaba and Begkar, who helped draft the constitution along with many other people. And there's one last thing I want to note is what I believe is important to note why Nehru respected the the scientific temperament of Buddhism and Nehru was not the only person to respect it. There's also Albert Einstein who did. during this time period Albert Einstein stated the religion of of the future will be a cosmic religion it should transcend personal God and avoid dogma and theology covering both the natural and the spiritual it should be based on a religious sense arising from the experience of all things natural and spiritual as a meaningful unity Buddhism answers this description if there is any religion that could cope with modern scientific needs it would be Buddhism um thank thank you for listening to this podcast and um I'll make future podcasts to um, examine the ideas of human rights, constitutionalism in India and America, and the threat of democracy to to India and USA in the future, and why I believe there's a threat of democracy around the world, threat to democracy around the world. Okay, thank you. Bye.